and welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. <laughs> With me <laughs> is Jeff. Is Jeff Allworth? Uh, you are Jeff. I am Patrick. You are the author of most recently the Widmer Way. Uh, also, the topic of one of our most recent podcasts. That's true. Congratulations. Thank uh, you. You can find him blogging and tweeting at Birvana. And you're Patrick Emerson, professor yes. of economics at Oregon State University, one of our fine institutions of higher learning. Yes. Uh, <laughs> my, my little cackle at the beginning was because we've been discussing exactly what is the appropriate way to introduce ourselves and each other. Uh, so we're. We're still working on this. You'd think this is pod, what, 71? So you'd think by now we'd figure this one out. Uh, this is what happens when you start rethinking things too much. That's right. We had had it figured out, but now we're, you know, we're, we're, we're always refreshing, always thinking, moving forward. That's right. Uh, being in a new environment here at X-Ray FM Studios. Everything's up for grabs. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, all new, an all new experience for us. So uh, have you been? I've been pretty good. You've been flogging the book a lot? Yes. The, when we record these podcasts, they're a little bit disconnected now from uh, when they're air. But uh, as we speak, uh, I have been in the midst of um, doing various uh, readings around town, and uh, I only have one of those left. But I, I will be headed, by the time this actually, I think, plays, I might be back. I don't know. Anyway, there will be a trip to New York in there at, at a certain right. point. You mentioned last time, Strand Bookstore. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty exciting. I'm very excited. Uh, yeah. Uh, give my regards to Broadway. <laughs> that was absolutely <laughs> terrible. Uh, okay, so here we are again, uh, ready for another exciting and uh, adventurous podcast. Today, as the weather starts to warm, and it is, by the way, this is one of the sad things about our new location is um, we're not staring out at the weather, so we don't talk about it as much, but it is a lovely, warm, sunny day in Portland, Oregon, nice spring day. The cherry trees are in bloom. Yeah, it's actually the cherry trees are are gone. It's, uh, it's those are red buds I think that you're seeing now. Uh, well, some cherry trees are still gone. Uh, we'll have in to my neighborhood. Later. Yeah, all right. We I can, don't think we those can discuss. are cherry trees. <laughs> all right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> since the weather is starting to warm, <laughs> our interests turn away from stronger, hardier beers to summery offerings. One category that has gained popularity are lightly acidic sour beers, many times made with fruit. They are crisp and refreshing uh, as a lemonade, and sometimes that's what they taste like. These beers are made from a particular method called kettle souring, and today we'll explore the technique and some of the beers. And yeah, actually, I'm seeing these more and more. I mean, it seems like it's growing trend uh, very rapidly. The, the trend is growing very rapidly. Yeah, it is. I think this technique, it's one of those uh, situations where a technique has given brewers a bunch of flexibility to do something cool, and they're using that to create uh, level different levels of acidity in their beers and it's an application they can put in a wide variety of beers and it's kind of a cool thing so we'll talk about that cool so that's coming up uh anything else you want to say before we hit the news uh, uh, <laughs> uh. <laughs> all right so, so we'll turn we'll turn straight to the news yeah you got you gotta give me some warning man <laughs> all right here comes the news A strange and interesting story came from the Boston Globe this week. Reporters uh, report trouble for a chain of craft beer stores called Craft Beer Cellar, uh, with 30 locations nationally, though most are in New England. And uh, I know you go to New England. I actually have gone to these stores, so they're a big deal there. 
They have a franchise model, and several of the franchisees are claiming that the owners of the company misled them about financial projections and later failed to support them uh, when their businesses were slow. Some of the stores have closed, and as more uh, of the store owners, franchisees, became antagonistic to the ownership, the owners retaliated with a defamation lawsuit. The lawsuit was later dismissed, but the Globe reports that troubles continue as financial problems for the entire chain mount. Uh, some of the stores are doing okay, but but many are not. And uh, so that's in line with a lot of the kind of other trends we're seeing, um, you know. Yeah. So I have two things to say about this. Oh, first, wonderful. <laughs> Fire away. The first and more interesting thing to say is that uh, uh, you mentioned going to New England. I'm going to New England. And I mentioned this because you're wearing your Boston Red Sox hat. I'm going to go to a Boston Red Sox game at Fenway Park for the first time ever. Oh, really? Which was always on my bucket list with my father who grew up within the walking distance of Fenway Park. Uh, but we never managed it uh, before he uh, got ill and died fairly quickly. And so um, this will be a way for me to pay homage. It was on my bucket list. And a couple of years ago, I got to go with Sally's family, who, much like your father, were lifelong uh, Boston fans and uh, long, you know, until uh, 2004, long suffering Boston fans. So, so I get to go I, and, and, and I'll, sample I'll, all the good beer. <laughs> that's right. I'll be really interested to see where you sat. I sat right behind the pesky pole, which uh, Fenway fans know as a uh, know exactly where that was. So we'll see where you are. Okay. There's a cool pub in the in the in the the building, but you got to get it to it from outside the building, and then you can look through it. It's really cool. Go the, go to that pub. All right, I'll I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Okay, that's the interesting thing. <laughs> the less interesting thing is, am I about to get all pedantic on franchising? But franchising uh, arrangements are always very interesting to economists because you've got a weird incentive problem. So, you, so the contracts are usually some kind of fixed fee that you pay the franchise or so mm-hmm. the, the parent company, mm-hmm. uh, plus then a percentage of sales. And it's interesting because the incentive, if it was all a uh, it was all a fixed fee, then the franchisor doesn't have an incentive to do things to help out the branches, right. like advertise, like innovate on ingredients if it's like a, a restaurant, those kinds of things. But if it's all sales, then that disincentives, uh, that causes a disincentive of the franchisees to, to work hard at, sa- at selling because they don't get as much as they would otherwise. So these franchise uh, contracts are always very interesting. They're, they're, there's not one universal sort of formula, uh, but these relationships are often fraught was sort of my final point hmm. uh, and um, because they're del- they're delicate because of these sort of two-way relationship you mm-hmm. expect things from the franchisor and the franchisor expects things from the franchisees uh, they're kind of independent but they're kind of part of the team and y- yeah. yeah I can see that's a uh, issue. and I and and I don't know too much about business but, <laughs> but I would suggest <laughs> I would think that starting a new franchise is, is tricky if you're a, if you're a small if you're a business person an entrepreneur a franchise that that's a very tricky arrangement if you've got how many do you say there were 30 locations? Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty tricky uh, number. Yeah, it's true. Anyway. So it is interesting. It's it's uh, one of those, it was probably not a problem when everybody wanted craft beer and everybody was making money, but now it's not the case. Yeah. So anyway, so, carry on. So uh, second item is that recently White Labs added a strange sounding strain to the catalog. And you told me how to pronounce this about two minutes ago and I've already forgotten. Queek? Quike. Quike. I was close. It's it's spelled K V E I K, so yes. you'll forgive my my lack of what uh, Swedish maybe. These are strange that, ha- that strains that hail from the uh, Scandinavian farmhouse breweries, and they exist entirely because of the amazing ethno- ethnographies of Lars Marius Garshol. Uh, excuse me, Lars, if I've butchered your name. Mm. He has been writing for the past few years at his site called Lars Blog. Some strains are saison funky and some are clean, like the White Lab strain. 
but they often require very warm temperatures and come from a branch of the yeast tree that most of us didn't know existed. That's cool. So do you know anything about the char- the characteristics of the flavor? Yeah, Lars is I would I would I would call Lars the most important beer writer uh, you've never heard of in Scandinavia. No, in the world. Okay. Uh, he is doing amazing work. He he's a techie guy, uh-huh. and he somehow got wind of. Uh, I think the first one he got wind of was Lithuania, so not even in Scandinavia. Uh-huh. And he went out there and investigated. as this farmer making beer, and then he realized there's this whole tradition in Lithuania of these farmers making particular kind of beers that were not commercial, and they have a maybe an incredibly tiny commercial component in the local village. You can buy them at a local store, but right. basically non-commercial home brewing. And are these uh, wild yeasts or are they? They're kind of wild. So they're these funky, they're, they're much more uh, like Saison strains, I would guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are. Uh, but they cultivate them. They, they, yeah, they repitch them. They have, they have all different kinds of yeast management techniques. So Uh he's, he's been all over the place. He's been to Lithuania, Estonia, up into Scandinavia, Sweden, Finland, and Norway, I think Norway. Uh, Anyway, and they all have kind of different processes. There's one, I remember it was, I was really transfixed where he, he would take the yeast, the yeast cake after he brewed a beer Uh and wrap it up and put it in his well. (laughs) <laughs> and it would sit there until he brewed the next time. Uh, and so it's stuff like that. So these these yeast strains sounds are sounds like a future pod. I know. It's it, if we could get Lars it would be fantastic. He does uh, he's done some really remarkable work and he's about to come out with a book Sweet. where he describes this. And yeah, now let's get him on the horn. Yeah, now this stuff is coming out and and people are starting to learn about it. They often have not heard of Lars. Like most of the people who get this strain from the yeast bank will not know about Lars's great work. So Okay. So that so the blog is called Lars blog and the strain is called Quika. Quike. Quike. <laughs> That's like, I don't know. Uh, and actually, you I, give me a third time, I would get it wrong a third time, too. Yeah. Sorry, I tried to do that. I tried to transliterate that. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I think it's Quike. That's what I discovered online. And if you have a correction, please let us know. <laughs> well, we'll get Lars on the line, and then he can tell us. That's right. Uh, okay. So uh, let's turn to our main topic. Let's do it. Kettle souring. Yeah. Why don't you tell us, as always, let's get started with the history of kettle souring. Where did it come from and why? Yeah. There, there are a couple of uh, beer styles that people will know about, Goza and Berliner Weisse, mm-hmm. which uh, are made with principally um, uh, lactobacillus cultures right. uh, to give a, a, a kind of flavor of uh, – well, we'll come back to that. Anyway, they're principally <laughs> lactobacillus, and these – these uh, traditions are very old in Germany. Berliner Weisse goes back at least 400 years, and Goza may go back to the 1300s, uh, which would be kind of remarkable. These are ale strains. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're made with wheat. Both beers are made with wheat, and they were often not used. Uh, they didn't use hops. Um, right. Lactobacillus is often uh, inhibited by hops, so a lot of times they weren't even boiled, uh. these beers. Um they were, you know, you'd go through the mash, and then uh, you have this spontaneous lactic fermentation. Right. Sometimes you'd add beer. Sometimes they were spontaneous. There were some that were, uh, they used smoked malt, like Lichtenheiner. There were some where you would do two batches of beer, like a regular wheat beer, and then the sour version, and then you'd blend them together. Uh-huh. There were spontaneous versions of it. They, so they all, if you look back at the different epochs of Berliner Weisse and Goza, there are all these different ways to make these kinds of beers. Right. Uh, and then, it, you know, fast forward several hundred years to the United States, and Americans are trying to figure out how to remake these these beers. And they, as we've talked about on the pod before, Berliner Weisse is characterized by 
the function of retinomyces in the palate, even though it, it tastes most distinctively distinctively of the lactobacillus. Right. But let's leave all that aside. <laughs> most Americans didn't know about that, and they were trying to figure out, how do I create a nice uh, sour beer uh, that has a flavor of this lactobacillus? And, and we're going to talk about that just directly. Right. And they tried different methods, and one of the kind of classic old old timey old school methods was the sour mash, uh-huh. where you yep. put a you put a you, you create your mash, so you have your barley and your wheat, and you put warm water in it, and you just let it sit there for like twelve hours, right? And then it'll sour naturally. But while that works, you and you often end up with pretty gr- a kind of, of a grimy fun. sour. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, garbage. Sometimes you get garbagey kind of flavors and aromas Yum. in there. Yeah, so that's not such a great thing. You can also pitch lactobacillus straight, and a lot of people just do. Uh, they'll make a normal beer, and then either pitch uh, lacto first and then regular yeast, or pitch them together, or some combination, or right. divide batches, or whatever. And that works okay. But the problem with uh, fermenting a full batch with lactobacillus is you no longer have any control right. over the acidity. You'll right. get the acidity that you get from that batch. Right. So it re- replicability is impossible, basically, and uh, and there's so much variance. Yeah, and you also end up with, if you want a, a, if you wanted to make a beer of a certain pH level that you could specify in advance, it's difficult to do if you're just leaving it up to the lactobacillus. Right, right. First of all, let's talk a little bit about what lactobacillus is and how it's different than other yeasts and other things. Yes. It is uh, bacteria. It's not a yeast. Right. So I don't actually know the difference between yeast and bacteria. I mean, I know that one's a fungus and one's a bacteria. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but for our purposes, the big thing that's important is that the uh, lactobacillus is anaerobic. So right. you do not want it in the presence of oxygen. Right. Yeast is aerobic. Right. It, it requires oxygen. Right. So these are... Uh, from from the brewer's perspectives, you have competing kinds of uh, context that you need to have your beer in. Right. So uh, when you're making a lacto beer, uh, the quality of lactobacillus is the same thing. Lactobacillus is what we make yogurt out of. So that kind of bell-like, sharp, sour. It's kind of a. Um, it's not complex. It doesn't have layers like Brettanomyces. Right. It doesn't have. It's just lactobacillus produces lactic acid, which has a very particular, right. distinctive flavor. Yeah. So if you if you eat plain yogurt, you know sort of that sour snap that you get from it. Right on. It's yeah. kind of citrusy on fresh when right. it's nice. So I want to step back one second. So uh, because yeast and 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 the lactobacteria uh, require different environments, uh, do I take it that what you're saying is that it's hard to do to make a beer with both at the same time? It, well, it poses challenges. Right. Uh, it, it, it will, because the, the yeast and the bacteria have competing interests right. in how they're ha- healthy, yeah. uh, that becomes a problem. But the other thing is, the, I think another really big thing is, if you put them together in, an, in wort right. and just let them go, then you're going to end up with whatever you get. Right. right? So you may end up with a, you know, a, a batch of you know, 4.2 pH or uh, 3.8 pH, right. and you don't really have a lot of ability to control that once you introduce these, these you know, these uh, bio, bioorganisms in there to right. to do their thing. Okay. So if you're looking for that kind of classic lactobacillus character, that little sharp sour, and uh, uh, there's been a lot of talk. This isn't, I mean, you know, lactobacillus in beer goes back thousands of years, certainly, and um, 
and these styles, which are characterized by that lactic quality, go back hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Um, in the marketplace, a lot of people talk about them as quick sours. There's a lot of confusion about, you know, there's barrel-aged beers with bretonomyces and right. these things. And I've watched a lot of confusion go by. And I, I, it's it's they're not quick sours. It's just a different process, and they have a different flavor. And all that stuff about the quick sours that you see is is mystifying to me uh-huh. from a brewer's perspective you have a flavor component you want to put in your beer right and then how is the best way to put it in there what's the most and this is a nice clean sharp sour that can balance out particularly sweet is why you see a lot of fruit but we'll get there right right exactly yeah so they developed uh breweries eventually developed this technique called kettle souring which is a really elegant solution for trying to get the flavor of lactobacillus and then being able to control the ph level right so the quick and dirty description, and breweries will do this slightly differently, is they make a regular beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, often it's made with wheat. Right. And um, do the mash. They louder at off, so they, they, they sparge and bring the wort over into the kettle, just mm-hmm. like they would normally do. But instead of going to boil, they pitch it with lactobacillus at that point and raise the temperature and there's several different lactobacillus strains and they like slightly different, different temperatures. temperatures so you can control what yeah. strain sort of profligates exactly but but warm they right. go up to 115 degrees so sometimes uh you know it's pretty you need a, a pretty warm environment so straight into the brew kettle you'd pitch lacto yep hold it at a temperature and you usually it's like up to 72 hours uh-huh. so breweries often don't brew over the weekend right. so they just throw a batch in the kettle pitch the lacto that's how long it takes them to multiply and yeah so 72 hours later they come in on monday morning and it's usually pretty good they check the ph see if it's ready to go Mm -hmm. um probably there's a good chance they came in over the weekend just to make sure it didn't didn't go (laughs) sideways but uh everybody will do that differently um and then one of the most elegant things is now you got a you got all these wild uh or not wild but you know, kind of crazy microorganisms in your beer. So right. what do you do? Yeah. You just fire up the kettle. Ah, boil that sucker. Boil them until they're dead. Yeah. Ah, very nice. That is very elegant. Yeah. And now you have a soured wort. So yeah. you have a big sour wort now. Yeah. What are you going to do with that? So now you have now you have a... a <laughs> yes, provocatively. <laughs> <laughs> now you have a nice uh, ingredient that you can use in your beer. You right. can you can, you can can go through an alcoholic fermentation after that. You've done a lactic fermentation. But there's still sugars left in the wort, and you can pitch with regular yeast, and you'll get a nice sour beer. Mm-hmm. Or you can begin blending. Right. You can do a, an alcohol fermentation and finish that out, and then you'll have a pretty acidic beer, right. which you can add in proportions to other beer. To, that doesn't have lacto in it. That doesn't have lacto in it to okay. get the kind of lactic uh, right. so zing you, can, you want. You can really control the, the amount of souring you're doing. Exactly. Uh, very good. Yeah, so a lot of breweries will create these sour worts and then... and uh, uh, you know, have them, and you can put them in a variety of different beers. You don't always have to have a beer that you know has uh, that is characterized by sourness. If you just want to add a little bit of acidity to a saison or a wit beer or right. a style like that, uh, a Bavarian Weizen, you can uh, just inflect it with a little bit of of this uh, this wort you've got that you've soured. So it it becomes this great toolkit for breweries to be able to create all kinds of different. Uh, flavor palettes. So when when was this technique first? I don't know, popularized. You know, it's kind of recent. I remember um, the we had the CBC here in Portland, mm-hmm. and there was a nice panel with Ben Edmonds uh, from Breakside, Ben Love from Gigantic, and 
uh, Sean Burke, who was then working at the Commons, right. and they talked about it. And it was the first time I'd really heard the full description of, of the entire process and right. how that works. Yeah. So I think, and that was in 2015. So these beers were coming online probably like 2013, 14, 15, as breweries were, this technique, as breweries were beginning to develop this and figure out how to do it. Okay. So this is, so so just to be clear, this is entirely different than all the different ways. This is not one of the many different ways that the uh, the Gozes and Berliner Weisses were made. That's right. It's an adaptation of those okay. kind of other techniques. Right. It's a modern adaptation to do something similar. They're, they're yeah. pretty close. And if you do make a Goza, this technique will produce a Goza that tastes like, a, 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 you know, a historic German Goza might have tasted. Uh, and is it is it solely an American craft beer technique now, or is it spread? Oh, everything spreads. Yeah, yeah. Uh, once, once people. I guess. I guess what I really meant is, it's is it back to Germany? Are they now making gozes this way, or, uh, or are they still tradition bound? I don't have any idea. Probably they're not making them. Not making that much. Way. Anyway, I don't. Right? So. Yeah, I don't think they're making so many gozes. I don't know. It's, that's, that's a it's great more question. Of the U.S. Yeah, uh, I know. I'm full of great questions. You're supposed to be full of great answers, but it's always good to stump the. The pendant. The chump. The pendant. <laughs> uh, but this, I think, is a good moment yeah. to try some goza. Now we, I mean, goza. Well, we try, some, to... try some kettle sour beer. That's right. We have, we have one here that's kind of a goza. Okay. So, uh, so, yeah, tell us what we have. Tell me what we have and the listeners. Well, we have a beer here that is probably the most uh, well-known kettle soured beer in America, uh, Dogfish Head's Sequench, which is a beer I've actually never had. Nor I. And um, they sell a ton of this stuff, and it, it really, it was the first time, I think, kettle, a kettle-soured beer found a, a large audience, although breweries, this this technique is broadly, and many breweries make beers with this technique. Right. This, this one is a national beer. You know, I can buy this in Portland, Oregon, and it's very, uh, it's 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 quite popular. I think they sell something like 40,000 barrels of this beer. It is, uh, yeah, so it's called a Session Sour. It's 4.9% ABV. Uh, it says that it is blissfully brewed with lime juice, lime peel, black limes, and sea salt. That's a lot of lime. Yeah. That's three different kinds of lime. That's right. Lime and salt. So this is, so it, yeah, that immediately sounds a little Goza-like. It's very Goza-like, yeah. and they've, they've inflected it. And one thing that Americans really got into, and, and I know traditionalists hate this, but um, Americans recognized the wonderful uh, way fruit goes with these soured beers. And uh -huh. so we started adulterating our gozas almost the second we started making them. <laughs> and um, that's kind of how Americans we got here. Americans have a love affair with sugar. What can you say? Ready? Okay, I'm going to put it under our special. There we go. Oh, that model's too much. <laughs> that's a good mic. Yeah. We, we have we have a special, in the mic, we have, uh, in the studio, we have a special uh, uh, beer mic, which is very cool. And it even has a name. Uh, that sounds refreshing, doesn't it? <sighs> <laughs> this Mike's name is something like, is it Edwina? Fred? Stan? Edward? I don't know. <laughs> it's got a name. Uh, we'll know that name eventually. But, yeah. Um, we'll check in with producer Will. That's right. Back there. I suppose microphones look fairly masculine, don't they? By the way. Probably have masculine names. If if you're impressed with the new audio quality of the uh, of the pod, it's all due to our, our now best friend, producer Will, <laughs> who's... Uh, who's making it sound a heck of a lot better than I ever could. That's true. Uh, it starts with, with good mics in the studio. Okay, so here we are. It's an incredibly fragrant beer. It's 18 inches away from me, and I can smell it really well. Yeah, it's got a nice uh, profile. It's a bit uh, cloudy. It's a bit hazy. Yep. Um, we once had a, like a, a, our personal haze meter. I can't remember what it was. but That's right, It was scored pretty. It was scored pretty high on our hazeometer. 
it's a. I'd say know, about like a five. A straw. Yeah. Yeah. I think we went up. I think like the really hazies were like sevens and eights, right? It went to ten, but. But we never quite got there. That's right. You have to leave ten open in case something really crazy comes yeah. along. Like so it's a kind gla- of a, a glass of uh, yeast. That's that's a, a ten. It's a sort of halfway straw to amber kind of. Maybe mm. a little more straw. Has a wonderful aroma. It's, it does, it's very yeah. fresh, uh, bready malts overlaid with uh, the the limey and sour characteristics. It's got a. It's very fresh smelling. Give that a hork. See what you think. This is a uh, January sixteenth. This was canned, so it's had a little bit of a life. But it's true. Although, as uh, Rudy Gehrer at Rodenbach says. Acidity is a preservative. Rodenbach is yeah. preservation by acidity. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, it seems to have preserved quite well because that, that tastes very fresh. And it does. That's really nice. It's very nice. This thing is, is I think it was very brilliant they didn't call it a goza because mm-hmm. goza is the kind of thing people don't want to buy. Yeah. So I, I don't know what that, how to pronounce that. I don't know what it is. It's got a really nice, I mean, it, it has a very nice acidic snap. It does. Uh, it balances the lime quite well. And it suggests lime. When you put lime in something, people expect it to have this character. Mm-hmm. Summary, sunshine in a glass. <laughs> the salt uh, is the salt is subdued. Yeah, I was about to say the same thing. The salt is not very present. It's there, but it's... Uh, just just enough of, to keep you wanting more. Yeah, it's a little right. bit... A little bit on the lips. I'm impressed. I didn't think it was going to be this sour, so I'm impressed. I like I like that as a, as a hot, uh, a hot day drink. Yeah, having a nice sour, yeah, residue on your tongue is, is good. That yeah, also makes you want it more as well. So it's interesting because you have the lacto sour, and then you also have this lime, the citrus sour mm-hmm. on top. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me. You might be able to tell better, but it's hard for me to sort of distinguish one from the other. Yeah, it seems like that would be intentional. But it seems like a very a very clever uh, brewer came up with that. But, uh, 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 I mean, the thing that we know uh, as brewers and, and other people who brew know is that when you don't use acidity and you just put fruit in the beer, it just tastes sweet. You lose yeah. the you lose the structure, and yeah. so it doesn't actually taste like fruit. You have to have yeah. the acidity and so. citrus. And and that's a, for me. I think citrus adding citrus to beer is really fraught. I. Uh, I tend to not like a lot of these, um, you know, grapefruit IPAs or orange beers because I think citrus is a really tricky thing to put into beer. I agree. For my palate, it just tends to dominate and kind of you lose the, the, the subtlety of the beer. A lot of people use uh, the peel, mm-hmm. and the peel doesn't taste the same as the, the fruit either. So you get a real resinous kind of oily quality, which tastes different, and yeah. it, it adds a nice component. But if people are looking for the flavor of the fruit, it's very hard to pull that off. But but here they've really done that. Yeah, I find, in fact, it's much more successful to get that citrus flavor from good hops. Mm-hmm. Right There's hops that are, can express like really powerful grapefruit, orange, whatever you want. Uh, but actually adding the juice is hard. But this one is really nice. I find the balance. Uh, the the uh, I'm now now that I've had a few sips, the the citrus lime really hits the top of my mouth, the beginning, the front of my mouth, at the beginning of the of the mouthful, and then the sour really stays on the tongue at the end. It's nice. Black lime. I don't know what a black lime is. One of us should have looked that up. I think that's made up. <laughs> no such thing as a black lime. <laughs> yeah, no such thing. <laughs> well, because they say lime juice, lime peel, and black limes. Well, you know. I, uh, so 
I think I've told you the story. My brother. We're get, I Somebody should definitely write in and tell us that we're crazy for just immediately <laughs> saying there's no such thing but, as but black I lines. But I've told you the story before. Probably. But I'm going to tell you again. hubris to say Speaking that. Speaking of adding citrus to beer, so my brother, uh, during his career as a uh, brewer, he's no longer, but uh, uh, he worked for this uh, brewery down in uh, Southern California called Hangar 24. And one of their popular beers, I think it was orange wheat, I think it was. It was a wheat beer with oranges. But it wasn't orange peel. It wasn't orange pulp. It wasn't orange juice. It was actually oranges. They just right. took a huge crate of oranges and dumped them into the... <laughs> Into the into the kettle, and so the story he has is one day they're doing that, and they they uh, dump them too vigorously or from too high a, a height, and he ended up getting splashed with boiling wort and, got, and got burns on his arms. <laughs> that's really blunt force brewing right there. It is. I was just throw the whole damn orange in the thing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I love that story. <laughs> anyway, so maybe that's what they're doing with these black limes. They're just chucking a whole bunch in there. Yeah, it could be. Who knows? Anyway, uh, I really like this beer, and I actually, I have to say that I'm not always the biggest fan of Dogfish Head, but Props. This is serious props. Yeah, yeah respect. I would, I would drink this all summer long. So should we move to this next one? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So um, uh, this yeah, next here. one now. Let's, so let's talk about now. You're the, you're the designated pourer. You're really good at this. We've talked. I know. I'm I am, pretty I, bad at it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, the, it's the PhD. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, I was about to say, oh yeah, so that was with lime juice. Now we're going to be talking about uh, a sour beer that adds a different kind of fruit. That's right. So talk about the... Well, we should yeah. we should step back just a moment and say, uh, let we've the, got... Let the beer speak for itself. We've got an ecliptic here in, our, in your hand. And ecliptic is John Harris's brewery. We've talked about it before. John Harris is the legendary brewer. Here in Oregon, and, and in fact, we're not very far from the Ecliptic Brewery That's true. here in the offices of X-Ray like FM. Yeah. That's right. Curiously, I, I did not see this coming at all, but John has a real passion for these uh, kettle sour beers, these fruited kettle sour beers. Yeah, he's known for kind of uh, IPAs and yeah. bitter IPAs, he like old school IPAs. Yeah, but now he's he's uh, found a love of these kettle soured uh, fruited beers, and we have one here called Karina. Which is a peach sour. And I've never had this. I have I not it, either. I know it's become very popular, but I've never had it. This is a 5.5%. So one of the nice things, and by the way, is this characteristic of these sour beers to be fairly low alcohol? Or is it just totally depends since you can be so flexible? You can make them any strength. I do think that uh, most breweries, because of their fresh, uh, refreshing quality, tend to go for more sessionable styles. Just, yeah. It's really, it seems so obvious. So yeah. um, that's what I've mostly seen. All right, so here's the peach sour. It's also, it's about the same level of haziness. It's actually the color, the the profile, it's a little bit more amber than, yeah, than the straw, a little really more straw colored of the dogfish head. Uh, it's got a really nice uh, head. We didn't mention the head on the dogfish head, but it roused a nice a nice head with um, uh, a pillowy top. Go ahead. No, Go ahead. you're the, oh, you're the master. I'm just, I'm just long for the ride. Hmm. <laughs> so the aroma of this beer is different. I only, I only do this, Jeff, because I get free beer once in a while. So. Ah, it's true. Well, it's only free because I buy the damn stuff. You're gonna have to buy the next next week's. So you're on the hook, man. Oh man, I keep popping this <laughs> armchair. Uh, so uh, lactobacillus has its own aroma, and I, I maybe it's the aroma of sour, or maybe it's lacto. I don't know. But this mm -hmm. is the where the other uh, the dogfish had a had a kind of a. A bready quality. This is almost all lactobacillus, and I'm not picking up the peach in the nose. So yeah. I'll taste it, and then I'll hand it to you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. 
Oh, I feel like I can. Uh, it's not strong, but I feel like I. I you get the peach. I get the peach a little bit, but it's also warming up. So. It is um, <clears throat> allergy season, and my nose is a little bit plugged. So. Yeah. But I could really smell that dogfish. Hmm. Oh wow! I <laughs> know. I had a, the same reaction. Ah, oh, this is very different than the other one. That's yeah. another thing too. You have it's a it's a technique. It's not a style, and so you can yeah. produce a lot of different kind of. Uh, but the difference between adding a bunch of citrus lime juice to it on the one, and then here you've got the peach, yeah, which expresses itself. It's not in the nose strongly. I agree, but it expresses itself really well in the mouth. It does. That's yeah. lovely. Yeah, that's really lovely. And this is a little less tart, a little yes. sweeter. That's right. So that's another cool thing, you and can, I think I think part of that I'm guessing as a brewer is that you have a fruit that's a little less uh, uh, robust, so you don't want to dominate the flavor by too much sourness. Do you think so? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess the brewers uh, will. Mm. One nice thing about this technique uh, is that you can season to taste almost right yeah. like you can you can adjust your ph as you're going along yeah. until you find that it, it 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 comes into harmony we actually home brewers can actually do this at home uh we did this technique when i was writing secrets of the master brewers yes and the way that we did it and this is just a method i came up with and you're being you know, kind of generous saying we but yes go ahead well we did uh <laughs> I, I was there once or twice but <laughs> i pioneered this technique yeah. which is crude so you may have a better technique and you should pass that along but my technique was i grabbed a uh mason jar so made some wort, grabbed a mason jar, put some saran wrap over it because right. keep in mind anaerobic, you don't want any oxygen in there. And then I put a, uh, I filled a cooler up with hot water, warm right. water yep. at a temperature I wanted, and I would put the I put the lacto in there and just let it sit there. And I had to switch the water about once every twelve hours or so. Mm -hmm. uh, it would cool down, and then I'd warm it up, and it cool down and warm it, and it worked. About for about three days. Yeah, for about three days. Yep. And then we put that, I think, in a saison or something. Yeah, um, actually, it was one of the more successful. It was totally successful. It was, Bruce. you know, it was one of those things where uh, I might have made it a little bit more tart had I had more volume, but I didn't have more volume. Like, as a brewer, if I did yeah, a whole I mean, batch, then I could have added even more. It was the one tart. experiment, you just dumped the whole thing in, and yeah. it was what it was. But, yeah, if you if you made a bigger amount of sour, then you could potentially blend to taste. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it's a good technique. It's easy to do. Lacto is a little bit expensive, so that's the one downside for a home brewer. But um, other yeah. than that, it's fine. So I hate, I hate the fruit beers that are cloying. I really, yeah, I totally. really, I really dislike. It. I just dislike <laughs> it. Uh, and this uh, Karina peach sour is not that at all. You you really expresses the 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 flavor of the peach without the sweetness and the cloying. The it's only way really to get nice. those flavors is if you have acidity, in my experience. Mm. Otherwise, it tastes like candy. It doesn't taste like fruit. Right. The acidity gives it the structure because in fruit and even yeah. in a peach, even a thing we think of as very sweet, um, uh, there's a lot of acidity yeah. that uh, creates the structure that makes it taste like fruit. And you actually know a lot about adding peaches to beer. Uh, so they add the pulp, not the stones. I remember you telling me something about the stones and... Uh, I, well, breweries will do it differently. I don't think you get a whole lot of character out of the stone of a peach. Right. Uh, I have brewed with pe peaches before, and um, did I use the stone? I, don't, I can't remember if I used the stone or not. With with certain fruits like cherries, uh, that stone will give a ton of character. It'll give a kind of a, a tannic. Well, maybe that's what I'm remembering. Quality. Then. Yeah. Okay, that's what I'm remembering. You tell me. If about you use peaches, <laughs> or if you use cherries, you got to use the pits. The pits uh, add okay. a lot. Yeah, that's so. what I'm remembering. Okay, but that's good also because. A cherry sour would be nice. Absolutely. Yeah. A classic. And so the stones add what again? Uh in in the in cherries? Yeah. 
they they give a little bit of a tannin, right. so a, a little bit of a bitterness, um, and it's kind of a a spicy bitterness. Um, mm-hmm. But then also a, 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 a really distinctive cinnamon note, uh, cinnamon That's to cool. clove, uh. um, which is is just uh, I don't know where that comes from, how that how that comes out of the pit, but it totally does. So uh, for the home brewer, lactobacillus is something that you can get at your homebrew shop. Yes, absolutely. And there's several varieties. And when you uh, pick a variety up, look and see what the recommended uh, temperatures are, because it may say at the lower end or it may say at the higher end. And, and if you it, you want the lactobacillus to function at the, the level it's, it's comfortable with, some lacto strains are uh, hop tolerant and some are, are hop resistant. Mm-hmm. Actually, if you have a, if you put hops in your wort, you'll kill them off uh, right and then others uh, you won't but um, some people like to have the ha- like to put a little hop in their wort just yeah. to, because they're anxious about it I don't think that's a problem right. in your case all you had was just straight grain wort yeah in fact I even I didn't even do a mash I just used uh, uh, DME and oh, created okay. a little because I was doing like two quarts or something and right. I didn't want to do a whole mash for that right so, oh, interesting okay yeah. this is uh, a good good pair of beers you got here because um you're welcome though they both have this sort of kettle souring commonality they're very different beers right really very different beers they're both exceptional i think uh i would love to drink tons of these beers uh and um but they're both obviously of a of a type which is that that they have that very clean mm-hmm. uh sharp sour note yeah and uh yeah it's clear how that you can sort of modulate it just to the right point yeah and you can see why Brewers have a hard time resisting putting fruit in it because it works so well. Oh, it works so well with fruit. Yeah, yeah. So the traditionalists, I kind of, I have to depart from the traditionalists here. They're, uh, uh, they're missing a, a wonderful opportunity. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, what else about sour? Anything? Nothing on my notes. So <laughs> that must mean we're done. Uh, if you are a home brewer, though, uh, it's a really fun, pretty safe way to try. Yeah. To try some new, interesting beers. And yeah. if you bugger up your, uh, your culture. You just don't use it. You're okay. You yeah. haven't, you haven't you screwed drink, up your beer. Yeah, you just drink the beer. If you pitch it in a whole, <laughs> if you pitch it in five gallons of beer uh, of wort, then and that doesn't work. Then you're out five gallons of beer. Right. So, okay. So now we turn to the mailbag and the Sherpa, and the mailbag is starting to fill up, which is nice. I know, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. But what do you want to do first? Sounds like you want to do Sherpa. I don't know. Well, it's not the top of the list, but we could uh, do it last. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at your script, my friend. Well, it's just in the holes <laughs> up there at the top. I don't know. All right, let's do mailbag. Yeah, let's, I agree. Let's do we've mailbag. We've just been talking a lot about beer, and this is a different beer you're going to talk about for your mail for your Sherpa. So that's what I'm thinking. All right. So uh, first item in the mailbag is from Jason. Jason writes: Listening to the latest pod where you were talking about how the size of the alcohol market overall and beer specifically had shrunk uh, since some date I don't recall, and I had a thought. Are you aware of any comparison of these stats with the rates of alcoholism, alcohol-related deaths in the same time frame? I believe, uh, sorry, I briefly looked but couldn't find a good source for those stats. I found stats but not stats over time. My thought was that perhaps there was a correlation there. So perhaps the fact that total sales dropping of beer specifically and alcohol overall might not be a great thing for business. It could represent a net positive for society overall. Which is a really good question. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, the answers to which uh, I don't have. Yeah, I don't. We, the stats is not something that I had time to dig around and find. I, I think uh, Jason looked for them and he couldn't find them. They're probably 
pretty hard to excavate if you don't have access to. Yeah, the right I do databases. know some. I, I do know a few economic studies that have looked at um, alcohol laws, like for example, states that have gone from 19 to 21 drinking age, like Wisconsin did between when I was there, went from 18 to 19. Right. When I was growing up in Wisconsin. <laughs> one one really interesting factor, which I would love to do, and there's there's an interesting kind of natural experiment that's happening is uh, we have drunk driving laws, right? right? So you have different states with different uh, blood alcohol levels where they set it at. So you have some states that are 0.08, some states are 0.1, yes. I think still 0.1. Mm-hmm. Utah just went to 0.05. Yeah. Oregon's talking about doing something similar. Right. Yeah. So you could you could compare states, which would be another way to see how that inflects yeah. uh, so the I, whole thing. I am aware, although I can't give you the I, I'm not so aware that I have the, I have the publication uh, and authors in my mind, but I'm aware of some studies that looked at the, the basically the tightening of alcohol laws, mostly around adolescents. Well, mm-hmm. I don't know you call them 18, 19, no, those aren't adolescents, young adults, mm-hmm. uh, and they find correlations between and in, in, in claim causality between the, the, the tightening of, of alcohol laws and of drunk driving laws and the reduction in uh, traffic fatalities. Yeah. So uh, I think that's probably true, I'm right. guessing, that, that you'd expect. <laughs> it, it's got to be, right? Yeah. But I also say that this is, a, this is a really good question because this is something that Jeff and I have actually discussed a number of occasions about trying to tackle this. We, this is a podcast about beer. Beer is alcohol. <laughs> alcohol. <laughs> and alcohol has an all kinds of different social implications, uh, including alcoholism. And as the adult child of an alcoholic, I am very sensitive to that. So yeah, uh, it's something that we that we uh, have wanted to tackle for a long time, have been a little chicken to do it because it's a big topic and it's hard to know how to approach it. But, right. uh, but I think it's worthwhile at least noting it at this point that it's not something we don't think about, um, that we are talking about in alcohol. And alcohol has its complications that's right and it's something we are sensitive to and also don't valorize uh the excesses yeah and it's one of, a and, lot of troubles and, and 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 just to say that's one of the things we've talked about a few times on this pod but that's one of the things that i have gravitated towards craft beer in particular because for me craft beer has changed the 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 landscape into sort of drinking to get drunk versus drinking to enjoy the the experience uh you know when i go out and drink i'll have maybe two sometimes three yeah in a in a four or five hour four or five hour session uh because it's really delightful beer and it's nice and you sit there and you enjoy it uh and it has very has much less to do with the alcohol than it has to do with the, the beer itself and so it was one of the things that i felt that the craft beer revolution in oregon did mm-hmm. was really change the drinking culture around beer it definitely changed the culture there's the more difficult thing to talk about which is uh and i'm not even i don't i'm not a psychologist i haven't done this this work but but uh people with proclivities store alcoholism yep. uh yeah are uh you know they still exist and absolutely so, <laughs> yeah that, that, that an ipa might be a tasty uh, alternative yeah in saying uh, that it changed the culture it doesn't mean that it's changed the, the reality of alcoholism at all so right. that's one of the things we've we've talked about before so anyway thanks for the question i'm sorry i don't have a better answer for you although i'll say that i do the one thing i do know is that tightening of alcohol laws both drunk driving laws and uh, uh, age uh, restrictions uh, has been shown to reduce traffic fatalities. That's the one research I know. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, next one, you. <laughs> David writes, I was a regular at the revamped Russell Street pub, so that's the Widmer This is the pub. Widmer thing, yeah. referring to our last p- or pod a couple times ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
They're all out of it's all out of sequence. And yeah, we're, so we're recording these kind of in batches, so we're trying to remember. What we're <laughs> yes, studio time is now valuable. But, no longer just our living room. That's right. Uh, so anyway, I was at the uh, I was a regular at the revamped Russell Street Pub and was sorry to see it shut down. Given the imp- uh, importance of draft beer and pubs in PDX, what was behind this latest move? Was it all uh, the ABI CBA influence? Uh, well, I think that Kurt gave us a pretty good answer when we talked to him which was that two things that uh they're not micromanagers they let the the pub people deal with the pub side and the brew people deal with the brew side and stuff uh it sounded very simple just there wasn't enough traffic anymore yeah i don't buy any of that (laughs) (laughs) i was i was completely convinced so here's the thing okay they installed an incredible brewery a little innovation brewery right next to the pub right this brewery was like a super miniature version of their Hootmon Brewery. Mm-hmm. So it has, it was all automated, amazing brewery. I don't even know how much that thing cost. The idea was we're going to use this to uh, create a bunch of beers, Right. 40 taps in the in the pub. We're going to have instant feedback from all these people drinking the beers. This is going to be our laboratory. It's our laboratory. New, new, for innovation and new beers, yeah. So what's the value of that? That, that value is quite profound, right? Okay. Uh, regardless of what the daily sales are. Regardless of the daily sales. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge it's a huge asset. And they they when they closed the pub down, they said, Well, we're still gonna try to put these beers out into the marketplace, but obviously you're not getting the direct feedback, so right. you lose that connection. So right. you're only looking at sales figures. Yeah. So it's a huge loss as far as that goes. Okay. And the other thing is they owned that building, right? Mm-hmm. So it's only wait staff that their cost that Oh now. Oh, you're gonna get me started now. Well, well, let's come back to that. Let me finish this, and then I want to hear your uh, I want to hear your your argument against because I haven't heard I've met, I mentioned this a few times. Well, well, okay. So but wait, and okay, just, let me ahead, just say ahead, that ahead, um, it's a two hundred million dollar company, and even if it were losing marginal money because of the staff is not bringing in as much as that, right. given all the benefit right. that you're getting from it, it seems like, come on. So that that that, that smells corporate, doesn't it? It's, That's what you're saying. It's, it smells like there's another. It, it, has, I, I, the, the dollars and cents don't add up enough to, for me to think that something other, uh, something else isn't at foot. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But now what? That's very interesting. No, I was just going to uh, be the economics professor. And yeah, say, I want to hear that. And say uh, it's not the accounting costs of the building. It's the opportunity cost, meaning that just because they own the building uh, doesn't mean you don't consider the cost of of using it for one purpose over another. So it's, it's the question is, what are they going to do with the building now that the pub is gone? Yeah. Well, right now they're just letting it sit there. Yeah. In which case, nothing with in it. which case, there's no opportunity cost. But <laughs> but the point is, yeah, from an economist yeah. perspective, you don't think about accounting costs. You think about opportunity costs. So if they could rent this space and have some independent pub operator come in and operate their own pub, for example, that would be the true cost of running the uh, the brewery. The so one, there you go. A little economics 101 for you. That was, that was fantastic. I mean, I think the one thing we do have to acknowledge is that by in August 2019, mm-hmm. uh, by August 2019, Anheuser-Busch has an opportunity to buy uh, the CBA. Yeah. And uh, when I saw this, I was like, I smell something going down. And Kurt punted side. on that. He's like, oh, I just don't know. I don't have any insight. But And he may not have insight. He may he, not. He retired a couple of years ago, yeah. so I don't know. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a business now and yeah. beyond him. So, uh, yeah, that that could be. So I don't know. Anyway, I I the whole thing did not. Let me let me ask you this though. Sense, let me. So. Uh, oh, we're kind of running out of time. But, no, we're okay. okay. Uh, but let me let me ask this. So, what would you do if you were AB? What do you how how, how would, would you, I buy the company yeah, or not? Like, yeah, I would buy the company. So they have to. They had this interesting deal where they had to. They had um, uh, when they when they struck their most recent 
deal with CBA. They have 10-year deals, and they did it back in 2016. Uh, they had an opportunity to buy the company at a certain stock rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, CBA is a public company. Right. And it went up every year. And the, the final year they had to buy that was 2019, August 2019. And it, it's, it's ticked up each time. Right. So they had an opportunity to buy it at a much cheaper price back yeah. in 2016. They blew that off. And, and, and so every year it goes by, it, make, it seems less likely they're going to buy it. And that's particularly the case given the craft beer is slowing down. Right. However, mm-hmm. Kona is a badass brand. It Which has, is one of the craft brewer alliance beers. Yeah. It has enormous potential. Yeah, it's the one that's carrying the company right now. It's totally carrying the company. Yeah. And it's got this kind of evergreen uh, brand that you can't manufacture. You know, yeah, the, the that's liquid actually, Aloha thing is just like... Yeah, and it's the kind of thing about Alaska, uh, the other non-contiguous state. It's (laughs) very similar, though. Uh, So it's clear that my mind would be confused. Uh, It's the kind of thing about Hawaii, which is it's a U.S. state, but it's not. It's its own thing. Yeah. Right. So if it's like beer from Oregon, you know, then there's like regional uh, uh, proclivities and stuff that might cause people to not want it or ignore it or stuff. But Hawaii is this like special sort of unique thing, and to the extent to which they've uh, you know, I've always been impressed by Kona beer because they've done a good job, uh, I think, at least trying to express some sort of Hawaiian character in their beer. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking uh, largely of the Wailua wheat, but also the Longboard Lager has just a little a little uh, banana and sort of something something that kind of gives you a hint of tropicality, I suppose. Right? And, and their, big, their big thing is the Big Wave IPA, which is just a golden ale, or Big Wave. Yeah, that I don't, I don't drink, so I don't know. <laughs> it's not super Hawaiian, but um, I've drunk those beers in Hawaii, and they're really, really, really nice in Hawaii. And you kind of, I don't know, there's something, it's like, it's, we're, we're going to do it. We're going to do a podcast on Mexican beers. Yeah. And there's something about the resonance of the place it comes from that just where it comes off. And the beer, if it's appropriate to that place, and like a, you can imagine yourself sitting on a beach. And yeah. The, so I can see know. how this brand travels. I guess that's my main point. Travels and has staying power because there's always this allure of Hawaii. I will say one thing. I know you're about to interject but uh when i was in hawaii the thing i really liked is that the wailua wheat six packs they'll have little stickers if they've been actually brewed locally (laughs) (laughs) but not all of them have and the idea is that the uh uh it's brewed with um uh passion fruit uh, passion fruit i was about to say papaya i knew that was wrong it's brewed with passion fruit and so i I imagine that the passion fruits it, it it to me it tasted different but that's probably just psychosomatic but anyway it's felt like the passion fruit was fresher and more present in the local one i agree too uh, but I think it's nice. also in the in the head. Yeah, probably. But I will say the last thing the the reason Kona makes a lot of sense from uh, Anheuser Busch's perspective is those kinds of beers, longboard lager, big wave, uh, golden ale, mm-hmm. can't be brewed at blood bud plants with no fiddling with the recipes. You could just immediately start brewing those at yeah. bud plants. Yeah. And so then you get your efficiencies of scale, and then you wouldn't need the uh, now twenty two year old brewery on. North Russell Street. So uh, I wonder if maybe this brings us back to this whole thing. Yeah. So that's what I'm Could wondering. be. Could be. So, All right. Anyway. Well, well, stay tuned. Yes. Okay. The last mailbag actually comes from producer Will. I don't <laughs> think producer Will knows that we have the mailbag. Uh, but Will, Will, Will wrote to us and said, just skim the updated 2019 style guidelines. These With, are for the uh, Brewers Association. Yep. I uh, would love to hear about Franconian style rot beer. Rot beer? Rot beer? Rote. Rote beer. Yeah, very good. Uh, and what happened to American ice beers? Yeah. Yeah, what happened to American ice beers, Jeff? <laughs> what What indeed? We're all lamenting the loss That's of all that. I used to drink. I know. It's. Uh, <laughs> I think Will's question was, what the hell? I didn't even know these things existed. I don't think Will's old enough to remember the ice beer commercials, are you? It's true. <laughs> it was one of those. It was a thing for a while. It was a stupid fad from the 90s, I think. Okay, I actually want a serious question because I was told once 
that like you know Asahi, the Japanese beer. Of course, is apparently has some like that's their thing, like they do ice, whatever. So this is like, so, like one of those things ancient, for... ancient Japanese. It must go back like centuries to the Meiji Dynasty, and I don't believe any of that. I have no idea. I'm just talking. I'm just so what? So tell me what ice beer is. Sure, <laughs> German brewmasters set that brewery up. So <laughs> is that I right? Don't, I don't think. Yeah, the Germans were all about that. Stuff. Asahi super dry. Super dry. That but I was, I was told, I don't even know if this is true, by the way, so don't take this to the bank, but I was told that it was because of their ice beer process or something. I don't know. I can't, I can't say anything about okay, that. Okay, so tell me well, what ice well, beer. Well, ice beer is an actual technique where you freeze the beer. You, what freezes, uh, because alcohol is a lower the water. freezing point, yeah, then so you, the water freezes, you take the ice out, then you have a concentrated Stronger beer. beer. And Exciting. And portedly, uh, these beers like um, Ice House and Natty Ice and these things go through <laughs> this favorite. process. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't I don't even know if that's true. They're slightly stronger. And um, uh, I remember I was at a barbecue with my dad. I suspect you're trying to tell me that it's mostly marketing. I think it's mostly marketing. Yeah. They're really bad. I, I was at a barbecue with my at my dad's house, and he had some of these things. And I was like, oh, it's so interesting. So I, it's like, oh, it's a mass market lager, but it's an ice beer. Ooh, it's like an ice box. Ooh, I want to try this, and it was terrible. So I, well, I'm never going to drink an Asahi the same way, man. Well, Asahi I, is a whole different thing. What am I going to do when I eat my sushi, man? But now, Franconian-style rot beer. Rot, of course, means red, mm-hmm. and this is apparently a very old style from Nuremberg. Of course. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Uh, as we <laughs> yeah, all I know. Yeah, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is an extremely minor style, and I was ex- I was surprised to see there that they had in- introduced it. Uh, however, there is one brewery in the United States who's making a rote beer. Would you care to guess who it is? Uh, Coors. Not close. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's try. It's our friend uh, Alan Taylor at Zeugel House. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah that, but if I wasn't being in the comedic mood, I, I, might, I might have actually you, thought about that. You might have gotten that one. Uh, cool. Uh, yeah. i got to try it then. Yeah. So uh, anyway, we'll look. We'll look for all the entries in the new. Uh, look for Alan to win the gold medal. Then that's right. Come on, it's Alan. It's gonna be like four. This four is beers. your challenge. If you don't miss, if you don't make the gold medal. I'm gonna be very disappointed. <laughs> all right, it's time for the time for the Sherpa. Now we got to change gears. Yeah, uh, I I'm committed to uh, Sherpaing each week, which means I'm trying to drink a lot of beer in the in, in the interim, yeah. a new beer, you know, and and uh, I'm actually trying to drink something that people might have a chance of of tasting. And I had never had an Inkasi's uh, Prismatic Juicy IPA, which mm-hmm. been out for a year, a year and a half. For a while, yep. yeah. And uh, for the first time, I had it. It was at my local uh, Matador place where I go over to get cheap nachos. <laughs> yes, I know the Matador. Yeah, and I thought it was spectacular. It was really great. It was a. It's a gentle. It's like five point eight percent, very juicy, uh, clear. So yep. they're they're clearly yep. trying to. There's a lot of Oregonians who just are not buying the hazy thing, yep. but they love the juice, and Man, that sucker just went down my gullet. It was good stuff. Yeah, I uh, I spent uh, we had a family reunion from my wife's family in Lake Tahoe last summer, mm-hmm. uh, and so I went to the beer store to not beer store. I went to the grocery store to get beer, uh, and I ended up grabbing a bunch of uh, that beer that I had not tried before. And yeah, it was I was similarly impressed. Yeah, I was, good stuff. I thought it was really really good. I thought um, you know I really like the the juicy. Flavor profile in general in my IPAs, and I thought this was a really good one. Yeah, it didn't have a lot of the chlorophyll that you get from over dry hopping or sweat that you get from weird hops or caraway from mosaic. It was all just juicy, so I liked it. Yeah, and and as you say, it's not super high in in alcohol, so it was one of those things I could sit by the lake and just drink, drink, drink. Yeah, cool. Very nice. Good job, Nikosti. 
All right. Well, that brings us to the conclusion of our podcast. Uh, a few words going out. Uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. Five stars. Five stars. <laughs> <laughs> or six, if you can figure uh, that out. This helps other listeners find our show. We're hoping that we can grow our audience a little bit now that we're actually semi-pro. <laughs> we'd, love, we'd love to hear from you uh, as well. Uh, thank you for the mailbag questions to those who sent them. Uh, please send us your questions or comments to jeff at beervonablog.com or visit us on social media, uh, the Beervana blog. Uh, Facebook page is a good way. Yep. Uh, Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog and he tweets at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beeronomics. All right. Uh, we still have beer. We do. Uh, I have the dogfish head. Wait a minute. What's it called? It's called the Sequench Ale. I've got the Karina Peach Ale. All right. Uh, cheers, cheers Jeff. Patrick.